I believe in the moral and peaceful virtues of sport. On the playing fields, men are no longer political or social friends or enemies, but only fellow players playing the same game. Baron Pierre de Coubertin, date unknown. Throughout the 19th century, sports were seen as the building blocks for a strong nation. Because sports made strong men, and strong men made strong militaries, and strong militaries made strong nations. It's interesting to think that the Barons saw sports on the one hand as a means by which people of all nations could come together as equals, and on the other, as the best way to bolster a nation like his home country of France. We touched on this a bit in The Road to the Games. The Baron had lived through the Franco-Prussian War and saw his beloved France fall to a unified German army. That experience drew him to the English physical education system for guidance in making France a powerful force in Europe. If the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton, as the Duke of Wellington thought, perhaps the next war would find victory in the schoolyards of Paris. It's hard to say which of these dual, albeit conflicting, motivations of the Baron was stronger. This idea that sports could bring peace. But if not, it could give a country a leg up when the fighting began. The Baron wasn't alone in his views. In the early 19th century, after suffering defeat at the hands of Napoleon Bonaparte and the French, several German-Prussian thinkers turned to physical education as a method of national repair. Among these thinkers was Friedrich Ludwig Jahn, known largely as the father of gymnastics. Now, gymnastics didn't begin with Jahn, just as education reform didn't begin with the Baron. Gymnastics incorporated with education dates back at least to Johann Basedow in the mid-1700s and German thinker J.C.F. Gutzmuth published his book, Gymnastics for Youth, in 1793. But while the theories and instances of application predate him, Jan marked a distinct shift, an explosion of implementation. Jan's method of gymnastics, in which students exercised in open, outdoor areas through running, jumping, vaulting, and climbing, aimed to unify the various German states and promote a collective national morality and national pride all while physically strengthening the German people. In the 1820s, Jan's German gymnastics, Turnen, underwent a ban by the government because it seemed intertwined with revolutionary activities, as some of the students linked with Turnen had instigated and carried out attacks against the Prussian state. But by the 1840s, the Prussian Ministry of Education noticed the decline in health among German children, and the Ministry of War noticed the rising tensions and uncertainties among the political landscape of Europe. The solution to both their problems came in the form of gymnastics. Beginning in 1847, Germany incorporated gymnastics exercises in their physical education for both military and non-military students. The incorporation became such an integral part of German military training that debates arose within the education department as to the most effective method of gymnastics. On the one hand was Jan's German method, with vaulting, marching, and fixed beams and bars. On the other was Par Henrik Ling's Swedish method, with calisthenics and floor exercises. The former had a specifically nationalistic leaning. The latter focused on overall health and the medical values of exercise. By the 1870s, a hybrid of the two methods, created by Adolf Spies, became the prominent system throughout the Prussian Empire. Spies' method included calisthenics, exercises on fixed bars, and marching exercises, which made the group move as one unit. In 
This was the system known best to the German competitors at the 1896 Games, and is largely the reason why the German team dominated the gymnastics events. Although it took some time to settle on one method, the government-promoted physical education of the 1840s had results. The Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 was fought by a strong and unified German army. Would the outcome of the war have been different if the German people hadn't spent the last 30 years focused specifically on physical health and national unity? It's hard to say. But Napoleon's victory turned the Germans toward sports. German victory 60 years later turned the French toward sports. For an enterprise promoting global unity and understanding, sports certainly has a gravitational pull toward conflict. My point here is simple. Sports are a double-edged sword. They're the offered olive branch and the throne gauntlet, a method of peace and of war. They are the carrot and the stick. And the Olympic Games are no different. The games display the unity of humanity while flaunting a nation's power and superiority. This dichotomy of sport was not a surprise to those who revived the games. In fact, the second bulletin of the IOC following the Paris Congress in 1894 noted Athleticism can be set in motion by the noblest as well as the vilest passions. It may be chivalrous or corrupted, manly or bestial. Finally, it can be used to consolidate peace as well as to prepare for war. Now, nobility of sentiment, the cult of disinterestedness and of honor, the spirit of chivalry, manly energy, and peace are the first needs of modern democracies, whether they be republican or monarchical. In later years, the struggle between emphasizing the unity of individuals from around the world and the dominance of particular nations over others was exacerbated by the requirements set forth by the IOC. Yet one of the most puzzling aspects of these requirements is that they came after the first Olympiad. The official Olympic Charter was codified in 1908, but in its infancy it was little more than a reminiscent yearbook. In fact, the title of the 1908 charter translates to International Olympic Committee Yearbook. It mostly covered the history and responsibilities of the IOC. Many believe Kuberton began writing the charter as early as 1898, but again, this came after the conclusion of the 1896 Games. So even if the charter was an exhaustive explanation of the rules and regulations for the modern games, it had no bearing on this first Olympiad. Extensive rules and regulations for the sporting events of the 1908 Games were published separately, and I was unable to find any documentation of the official rules leading up to 1896, which were set in stone and mandatory to follow. All that to say, since the documentation came after the conclusion of the 1896 Games, the IOC had the opportunity to assess the pros and cons of the first Games, in which many of the early rules were known only in theory, not practice, if they were known at all and to decide from that evidence how to proceed for future games. Perhaps they did assess these wild, wild west-type games where anything goes, and from their assessment decided on the requirements which would later be set in place. If that's the case, the IOC set itself up for many of the political headaches regarding national representation, which would mark later games. By the first Olympiad, the IOC had established, in theory, the rule that National Olympic Committees, NOCs, would be in charge of sending eligible athletes to the Olympic Games. But the early NOCs were barely existent, and, as we saw with the stories of John Bolin and the Payne brothers, 
This was clearly not a make-or-break rule for the athletes. The key to competing in the first Olympiad was athletic clubs, not NOCs, since athletic clubs could prove amateur status. Still, an athlete could only represent the country of which he was a citizen, even if the process of getting to the Games didn't go through his NOC. And even those, like William Sloan, who sought to follow the IOC rules as closely as possible, had some difficulty since the process was not as binding or official as the one we have now. William Sloan was a professor at Princeton University, an early supporter of Coubertin's, and a member of the IOC, and the founder and chairman of the American Olympic Committee. It was his responsibility to make the arrangements for the American athletes heading to Greece, who, as of March 17th, were all Princeton athletes. The March 18, 1896 edition of the Baltimore Sun, published just a few days before the Americans would sail for Athens, admits, Professor William M. Sloan expressed great surprise today when he learned that the Boston Athletic Club would send a team, as he had received a message Saturday stating that they had given up the idea. Just an aside here, Sloan's apparently close involvement with the travel process makes me wonder how the Americans managed to arrive in Athens only the night before the Games. Was the story of a scheduling mix-up really an attempt to clear his name from accusations of mismanagement? Regardless, my point in mentioning Sloan, Bolin, and the Payne brothers is to demonstrate the unregulated process of the First Olympiad. The Payne brothers' journey to Athens would be comparable to an American swimmer in Singapore hearing about the Tokyo Games and showing up a few days early to compete with the rest of the Americans. Can you imagine? Later IOC rules would require participation to come through the NOCs, making the process more formal and organized and solidifying requirements of citizenship and nationality. Even without these concrete rules of representation and qualifications, the 1896 Games included hoisting the national flag of winners as long as the nation corresponded with an established NOC. But what about athletes who were forced to represent a country to which they felt no connection or loyalty? I'll note here that since 1992, the IOC has occasionally made allowances for certain athletes to participate under the title of Individual Olympic Athletes and Independent Olympic Participants. In 2015, the IOC announced a refugee Olympic team for the 2016 Rio Games, and members qualified and were selected through the Olympic Solidarity Commission rather than an NOC. Unfortunately for early Olympians, these alternatives weren't an option. Though the qualification and selection process wasn't strictly tied to an NOC in 1896, athletes were still tied to a flag. Now, some athletes took this harder than others, but it has altered the history books nonetheless. For example, Edwin Flack is considered Australia's first Olympic champion, and two of his medals are attributed to Australia's national medal count. But Australia wasn't an independent nation in 1896. Flack competed through the London Athletic Club and under the flag of Great Britain, though some reports say he still ran his events in his Melbourne club colors. Rather than keep his medals with the historical tally of Great Britain, under which the medals were originally won, the IOC moved them to Australia's count. This retroactive adjustment because of a country's independence or an athlete's participation is the main reason why it's difficult to find accurate medal counts from the early games or even to determine which countries officially participated. Even so, when Flack won his race in 1896, the Union Jack rose in the stadium. I'm not sure how Flack felt about this, or if he cared at all, but the flag-raising ceremony after an Olympic event is certainly a profound moment, which no doubt explains the overwhelming pride 
or infuriating displeasure athletes have shown during it, depending on the relationship to the flag. For American athlete Ellery Clark, that moment under the Athenian sky was pure joy. Honoring Clark and interviewing his son for the 1984 article, Cohasset Hero Remembered, Jane Lane writes, In a moment shared by father and son, the elder once told his young child that the proudest moment in his life was standing aside the American flag as it was raised twice in that foreign land, a tribute to the best athlete in the world. I'll contrast this experience with Peter O'Connor's at the 1906 Intercalated Games. Due to IOC rules which required athletes to compete under an NOC, Irishman Peter O'Connor, Con Leahy, and John Daly of the Gaelic Athletic Association were forced to compete as British. Although the trio was sent to the 1906 Games by the Irish Amateur Athletic Association, they learned on arrival that they could not compete as Irish since Ireland did not have an NOC through which to select and send athletes. The Evening Star reported on the incident as follows. An international dispute has arisen over the entry of the Irish competitors in the Olympic Games. The men from the Green Isle are down on the program as hailing from England, and it was understood that the points they made would count for Great Britain. Peter O'Connor, an Irish jumper, protested against the action of the Olympic Committee, asserting that he, Leahy, and Daly had the right to be classified as Irishmen, and their points scored accordingly. It is the custom when a man wins to hoist his national flag at the top of the stadium, O'Connor brought a big green streamer with a gold harp to be flung to the breeze when the Irishmen were victorious. The case will be decided by the International Committee, and it will soon be known whether the green emblem or the Union Jack will fly when a Celt scores. And indeed it was. When Peter O'Connor won second place in the long jump, the Union Jack rose in the stadium. Unwilling to bear false witness, O'Connor climbed the flagpole with his Aaron Gabra flag in hand, and, while his teammate Leahy guarded the flagpole, O'Connor switched the Union Jack for the Irish flag. Rather than repeat the feat when he won the triple jump, O'Connor walked through the stadium waving his green flag and left the Union Jack alone on the pole. He was praised by the Irish for his protest, but for the IOC, it was a PR nightmare, flying in the face of the hope for apolitical games. O'Connor's actions were the start of what would become a long history of using the Olympic stage as an opportunity for political statements and protests. Unfortunately for O'Connor, the IOC would later mark the 1906 Games as unofficial, meaning these competitions would not be considered Olympic and the results would not carry over for national medal counts or as Olympic records. It wasn't until 1922 that Ireland established an official NOC and sent athletes under the Irish flag. While many of the rules and regulations concerning Olympic participation may have lacked the structure we know today, one rule was ratified from the beginning and set in stone as the foundation of the Games. Amateurism. Now, just because IOC delegates in 1894 agreed amateurism was vital does not mean they agreed on what constituted an amateur. Nor did their motives for advocating amateurism align. Some hoped the rule would effectively eliminate the working class from competing. Others hoped it would ensure honesty in sports, and some thought it was the best way to keep sports pure, sort of a sports-for-sports-sake ideal. Whatever the motives, the incorporation of amateurism became one of the great battles of the Olympics until the giant finally fell, officially, in 1992. Now the battle has shifted to collegiate athletes, 
And if you're familiar with that debate, you'll understand some of the complications that plagued the Olympics for nearly 100 years. First, let's define the term, at least as it was understood in 1896. This is harder to do than you might think, since each sporting association had its own rules regarding amateurism. But looking at the commonalities between various associations, the broad definition of an amateur athlete in 1896 is one who competes purely for the love of the sport, not for money or material gain. To ensure amateur status, athletes could not receive any money or material gain for competing or for their direct connection to their sport. Even if an athlete competed strictly for the love of the sport, receiving any monetary payment for that competition meant his amateur status could be revoked. This shows how seriously sporting federations and athletic associations believed that payment implied impure motive. Amateurism is synonymous with disinterestedness, and the idea that the reason for a sport lies purely within the sport itself. The sport is never a means to an end, but rather the end itself. Therefore, the only way an athlete could prove a strict sport-for-sport's-sake motivation was to abstain from receiving any benefit from the sport. In short, amateurism centered on one thing. Motive. And how on earth you regulate motive is why amateurism is such a fickle beast. While the no-payment rule is probably the easiest to understand, there is also the rule preventing amateurs from competing against professionals the rule preventing an amateur in one sport from being a professional in another while maintaining overall amateur status, and the rule against coaches maintaining amateur status for themselves. Of course, there are exceptions to every rule, but it's a fine line between exception and revoked status. Robert Paddock wrote a great article titled Amateurism, an idea of the past or a necessity for the future. In it, he explains some of the contradictory assumptions about amateurism and questions some of the rules I mentioned earlier. The basic assumption in this monetary interpretation of amateurism is that money destroys disinterestedness. The athlete who receives money for sporting performance must be doing it for the money. This is clearly unreasonable. When people are paid for a service, it does not follow that they did it for the money. Some people are lucky enough to be paid for things that they like to do and would have done anyway. Why should it be assumed that an athlete's disinterestedness will be destroyed by association with a professional? Why should it be assumed that an athlete transfers a professional attitude from one activity to all other activities, or from the past to the present, or that an intention to earn money from sport in the distant future, perhaps as a coach, destroys disinterestedness in participation now? It's also important to understand the contradictory nature of amateurism. In order to keep sporting competitions fair or equally matched, several aspects were considered. First, of course, is the monetary aspect, because if money is on the line, someone might be willing to cheat or purposefully lose or simply play it safe enough not to lose. And where's the fun in that? Each of these possibilities will negatively impact the competition in various ways. So to have competitions where athletes give it their all, relying solely on their own physical capabilities, money is out of the question. But this also seems to indicate that amateurs will most likely be the ones who can afford to participate in sport for sport's sake. Perhaps this is why so many early Olympians, at least from the U.S., were college students, not working-class citizens like Spyridon Luis. The next aspect separating professionals from amateurs is time, 
since the amount of time one can dedicate to an activity will probably, though not definitely, translate to higher ability. I'm quick to add that caveat because we only need to look at Robert Garrett's discus event to realize that time does not always have a direct correlation to ability. And the fact that Garrett competed alongside Greeks who were born for the event, at least according to the description in the official report, seems to indicate that this is a lower-tier aspect of amateurism. Regardless, it does factor into the debate. And it seems to balance out, in some ways, the upper-class leanings of the no-money rule. After all, what working-class citizen has time to perfect his ability in a sport? The idea that time differentiates an amateur from a professional had another implication. It'd be unfair for an amateur to go up against someone who dedicates the majority of his time to perfecting his performance, and therefore, the competition itself would not accurately reflect pure sport. One side would allegedly clearly have an advantage. So amateurs were not allowed to compete against professionals. However, this does not explain why an amateur who plays against a professional will lose amateur status. Why penalize the underdog any further? Some interpreted the definition of amateurism through the lens of social class, which is why such groups as gentlemen amateurs exist. Remember, this understanding of amateurism allowed professional fencers to compete in Athens, although they did not compete against the amateur fencers. To help explain this understanding of amateurism, I turn once again to Paddock's article. Here, it is assumed that the distinction between done for its own sake and done for some further purpose can be interpreted as the distinction between an upper and middle class view of games as pastimes, and a working-class view of games as another opportunity to make a bit. Because some working-class occupations developed a proficiency which gave an advantage in some sports, and thus were equivalent to training, workers in those occupations were excluded from competing with the gentleman amateur. As with the interpretation of amateurism in terms of time, the matter of standard becomes a reason for keeping the amateurs apart from those whose work gives them an advantage, directly or indirectly. In other words, while the working-class citizen might not have the time to train like a professional, the work itself might be a method of training which gives the worker an advantage similar to what training professionals receive. Think about Spyridon Luis running those water jugs all around Athens. Clearly, that job gave him an advantage in a sport he didn't know existed until a couple months before its inception. Sure, he wasn't training for the marathon— But, some might say, that advantage prevents him from claiming amateur status outright. This view of amateurism tips the scale back in favor of the well-to-do. It also assumes that those who aren't well-off see sport as a means to an end, rather than an end in itself. I have no doubt that's the case for some, but to assume that's the case across the board is nonsense, as is the assumption that no upper-class athlete uses sports as a means to an end. Show me a working-class athlete who runs a foot race for a bet, and I'll show you an upper-class gent who runs to impress a girl. Yet only one of these is seen as an infraction of amateur status. And let's not forget about Stamata Ravithi, the woman who unofficially ran the marathon in 1896 in hopes of providing a better life for her and her children. For Ravithi, the marathon was a means to an end, and so, some might say, she did not have the attitude of an amateur, and could not claim amateur status. My point is that people approached amateurism as if it was a black and white concept, 
and simultaneously defined amateurism in terms of perceived motivation. This is why amateurism is the shadow which looms over the games, at least until bigger shadows come along. This is also probably why we understand amateurism today almost exclusively in terms of money. Those who are paid are professionals. Those who aren't paid are amateurs. But that delineation doesn't indicate quality, nor is it terribly accurate. For example, college students might receive scholarships related to their participation in a particular sport while maintaining amateur status. So while the amateur events might not give the winner a hefty paycheck, amateur athletes are compensated in other ways. And even then, it's a fine line. Just think about the NCAA regulations and rules. If your head is spinning trying to keep the rules straight or make sense of the reasoning, I can only offer you even more frustration. Amateurism, with regard to sports, is a relatively new concept, originating in Britain around the 1860s and gaining prominence in the United States in the decades which followed. If proponents of amateurism in the Olympics sought to do so in order to keep in step with the ancient games, they were wasting their time. Additionally, Coubertin, whose cunning was evident in the preparations for the 1894 Paris Congress, played the mastermind once again when it came to amateurism. The Baron knew he needed Britain and the U.S. on board with the Games if there was any chance at revival. He also had to get some of the European sporting elites on board if the Games would be on the caliber he imagined. The key to their involvement was amateurism. So the Baron smiled and nodded until all the I's were dotted and T's were crossed. He presented the 1894 Congress fully on the topic of amateurism, with the revival of the Games basically coming as a footnote to the program. Seeing how closely the Baron's name was tied with promotions of amateurism, you would have thought it was the hill he was willing to die on. Not so. He wrote in his 1931 memoir, Today I can admit it. The amateur question never really bothered me. It had served as a screen to convene the Congress designed to revive the Olympic Games. Realizing the importance attached to it in sporting circles, I always showed the necessary enthusiasm. But it was enthusiasm without real conviction. So what should we make of this? Did amateurism become an Olympic staple because the Brits were keen on it, and because the Baron didn't really care enough to say otherwise? Could we have even had the revival of the Games without it? Would it have changed anything if athletes were paid? Should the rule have ended well before 1992? I'll let you consider those questions for yourself, along with the words of Robert Paddock. The games deny their very essence if they appear to use athletics as an excuse for having a party, for selling advertising space, for showing the superiority of a political system, for promoting the tourist industry or economy of a country, or for entertainment. The games should be a clear and unambiguous glorification of the athlete. Further, it should be remembered that the athlete who is worthy of glorification will be, whether paid or unpaid, full-time or part-time, upper-class or lower-class, basically an amateur, someone devoted to the pursuit of excellence as a worthwhile human activity. From its inception, we see that the Olympics are a game of choices. They live in the gray. German gymnastics are Swiss. National representation or individual. Professional or amateur. These debates, among many others, have and will continue to fuel the politics of the games. 
This episode was written and produced by Olivia Cheney. The intro music is from Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man. The sound effects and theme song are from zapsplat.com. Primary source quotes are read by Cameron Cheney. You can find him on Fiverr as Moose Gone Mad. The transcript for this episode of The Games is available at thegamespodcast.wordpress.com. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or any episode of The Games, feel free to reach out via the WordPress site or through Instagram by searching at The Games Podcast. Bonus material is posted to Instagram, so be sure to follow at The Games Podcast while you're there. If you enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate it if you could share it with your friends or leave a rating or review. It means a lot. Special thanks to Rebecca Brewster-Stevenson for helping edit the script and to Stephen Krotz for providing guidance on the subject matter. Thanks for listening and see you next time.